1: figure out systematically that things are inflating because they're paying the price of those things. Whereas investors or people like me already front run them. You know, that's the whole point. You got to get long inflation before the people at large realize it. And that by the time some government guy, central planning gal, by the time they tell us that inflation's here, you know, the investment opportunity to have been long commodities or Bitcoin for that matter is way in the rearview mirror. I don't think that the the gold price and the Bitcoin price in particular are are validations that great central market plannings are are, are working. I think that they're telling you it's the beginning of the end of an establishment in a regime like the Federal Reserve.
2: Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Wednesday, August 5th, and today I am so excited to bring you an interview with the mucker himself, Hedgeye CEO Keith McCullough. We are going to get into everything from the devalued dollar to Bitcoin and beyond, so stick around for that. First up, however, the brief. First up on the brief today, Robinhood doubles its second quarter trading revenue. Robinhood has obviously been throughout the year a huge force in the markets, at least from a narrative perspective. They have commanded the attention of media, but the question is are they really growing in step with that? Well, their revenue doubled between quarter one and quarter two, or at least nearly doubled from 91 million in quarter one to 180 million in quarter two. Of that, 111 million or 62% came from options. Options have obviously been at the center of some of the strategies deployed by folks like the Wall Street Bets community to try to drive up prices in the short term in order to benefit. Importantly, this growth is not just limited to Robinhood when it comes to telling the story of retail, other brokerages are going up as well. TD Ameritrade saw its revenue grow from 220 million to 340 million between Q1 and Q2. E-trade went from 85 million to 120 million. So, what does this all mean? Well, one, the trend lines are clear there is growth in retail trading. Impossible to deny it just looking at these numbers. Second, the numbers overall are still pretty small when it comes to trying to understand this as a market force, which brings us to number 3. What matters more is that there is a clear trend line and serious growth and enough emphasis to actually potentially move certain stocks, but all of this really matters for contributing to the narrative and the narrative power that retail traders have. When both mainstream media is amplifying the narrative and high-frequency traders are amplifying the actual force in the market, which if you want to understand more about that, go back and check out my interview with Tony Greer, you have a force to be reckoned with. Next up on the brief, Square's Bitcoin revenue surges. In Q2 of this year, Square generated 875 million in Bitcoin revenue and 17 million in Bitcoin gross profit. That's 600% growth in revenue and 711% growth in profit year over year. It's also huge growth from quarter one, which saw 306.1 million in revenue and 6.7 million in profit. So, why does this matter? Well, one, it's very hard to ignore this expression of interest in this Bitcoin space, right? Going from 306.1 million to 875 million is nothing to slouch at, nothing to scoff at, given that it was just a single quarter. What's more, this reaffirms the importance of Square as a central and critical channel for onboarding new people into the Bitcoin space. 875 million in Bitcoin revenue in a single quarter is a serious number. Last up on the brief today, the ADP Private Payrolls Report. What happened? Well, ADP Private Payrolls is one of the two big payrolls reports that comes out monthly. The other being the NFP report, the non-farm payroll report that's from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The ADP report is released by Automatic Data Processing, which is a human resources and management software company, but these are the two big ones. June had seen a 2.369 million jump in private payrolls, and people were expecting another solid, although slightly slower month. The consensus was expecting around 1.2 million new jobs. The actual number was only 167,000, so this is obviously A huge amount lower, something like 10 to 15 percent of what people expected. All of these gains that did happen were in very small or very large businesses. In medium businesses, between 50 and 499 employees, there actually were a loss of 25,000 jobs. What's more, in terms of goods producing jobs, there were only a thousand gained. So service jobs were up 166,000, but Good producing jobs, manufacturing jobs were only up 1,000, and within that, construction jobs were actually down 8,000 jobs. Why does this matter? Well, again, everything is about expectations, and the expectation was to see solid growth month to month of 1.2 million new jobs. This really puts a pin in the point that the coronavirus return and resurgence in different parts of the country has stopped the growth that we were seeing and the recovery that we were seeing. This is obviously something that should be at the top of mind for anyone who's trying to figure out where we go from here. So I think it's a really important bit of data. Now, we will see what the non-farm payroll report says on Friday. Maybe it tells a different story. It's not uncommon for these two reports to tell a different story, but this one bit of data is not looking good. With that, let's get into our main conversation with Keith McCullough. Keith McCullough is the CEO of Hedgeye, which describes itself as a no-excuses provider of real-time investment research and a premier online financial media company. He has previously been a hedge fund manager at the Carlisle Blue Wave Partners Hedge Fund, Magnetar Capital, Falconhenge Partners, and Dawson Herman Capital Management. Most of you who know Keith know him from Hedgeye, and I think that frankly, along with things like Real Vision these guys are completely reinventing financial media. They're speaking to a different audience, and they're speaking frankly about what's actually happening in a way that you're just not going to get elsewhere. In this conversation, we talk about Hedgeye's full-cycle investing model. We talk about where things were going into COVID and why we're moving into a stagflation period. We talk about inflation versus deflation, the role of narrative, the role of the Fed, what it means that dollars are being devalued. We talk about Bitcoin and commodities. It is an awesome conversation, and like all of our conversations, it's edited only very lightly, so it's as real as it was when we were having it. I hope you enjoy this. I know you're going to, so let's dive in. All right, Keith, thanks so much for joining The Breakdown. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And just briefly, I want to, for folks who aren't necessarily as familiar with the hedge-eye process, to define a couple terms, because I think that we might come back to them throughout the conversation. So can we kick off by having you explain just a little bit about what's the idea of one full cycle investing, what's the GIP growth inflation policy model, and what are the quads?
1: For sure. There'd be... um they're all so all, all these things are part of the same thing so if you just think quite simply of where are you on the sine curve of a, of a cycle um so again you're either accelerating up the backside of the of the sine curve or you're decelerating from the peak of the cycle for example uh in growth or gdp growth and you have a decelerating component of the cycle so when you have um both and, and there it's really a two-factor model so nathaniel when you look at it you have gdp growth and inflation so you got those two factors, you, you, you measure and map them on the sine curve. There's data points that are released daily. We use modern technology, predictive tracking al- algorithms, et cetera, and code to track that. Um, so it's not an opinion on what the economy is doing. It's actually just what the economy uh, is actually doing real time to the day. And then um, we, we strap that into a four by, basically a two by two model that gives you four different economic quadrants. So again, and they're just a combination of those two factors. So when you have both growth and inflation accelerating at the same time, we call that quad two. Uh, When we have both growth and inflation decelerating at the same time, we call that quad four. Uh, When you have currently in the U.S. economy, we have inflation accelerating while real growth is decelerating. So we call that quad three or stagflation. So, again, if you really want to like boil it down, the economy is slowing when you're in quad three or quad four. Um, And when you're in quad three, the dollar goes down. Uh, so there are a lot of different we backtested every single thing in macro that that you could possibly own, which would include Bitcoin. And, you know, in Quad 3, Bitcoin is going to do really well uh, because the dollar is going to do really poorly. The U.S. economy on a real basis is doing quite poorly. Um, so, again, if you stay with the full cycle investing process, what you're really doing uh, is you're just staying with these um, two very basic factors in macro as being causal. Uh, they're, they're the ones causing uh, the outcomes. And once those change, well, then you change your position. So, for example, if you were to go into Quad 2, uh, then all of a sudden you'd have real growth accelerating and people would find a lot of other things to buy. But when you're in Quad 3, it's um, quite a damning situation economically where uh, the, the people are really getting plugged with, with, with commodity inflation, things like that, higher cost of living. And I think that that's why something like Bitcoin's going to continue to work higher and has most recently.
2: So I think one of the things that's really appealing to folks about this quad model is that it sets an analytical framework from within which we can have more precise debates, right? So policy has a dimension here where uh, certainly you have expectations based on what uh, you know what we've seen in the past about what policy might do, but that becomes kind of a, an additional variable. And and I think what people like, like I said, is that you know it, it refines things down a little bit. And so one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I was going back and reviewing uh some of your writing and, and uh, content from earlier in the year and as we were coming into COVID, at the end of february you guys said something to the effect of this you wrote risk accumulates much like grains of sand put more succinctly risk happens slowly than all at once coronavirus is obviously a big risk to financial markets but the overall instability of financial markets has been building for some time so this was obviously something that you were seeing even before this crisis hit so i guess what were you watching earlier this year, kind of in the February timeframe? And then how has COVID changed or, or moved things uh, since then?
1: Yeah, it really, I mean, it started to manifest uh, at the end of January and to your point into the, the heart of February, where it was kind of interesting because at that point, uh, the S&P 500 was making all-time highs. There wasn't as much interest in the kinds of things that you'd be buying today. Um, but it was just, it, like I, I say to myself all the time, it's it's just the data stupid. So at the end of the day, <laughs> Um, you you can kind of be stupid about it because you just wait for the data to change. So what was happening was the economy was super late cycle. Um, So again, just think about that, like back on the sine curve coming off the very top of the sine curve. So the probability of an event was rising. So when you think about economies or nonlinear systems, anything in nature, uh, when you think of it fractally or how I measure and map it, again, not using linear assumptions or valuations or any of this old wall street or as uh, Fortnite would say, you know, the suit's garbage in terms of like garbage in, garbage out. It was just very obvious that all of our predictive tracking algorithms real time were were signaling uh, a a big deflation was coming. Now, deflation, again, is quad four uh, in that GIP model that you mentioned. Again, it's a growth inflation policy model. And the P part of that model, which I meant to say, Nathaniel, you're basically front running policymakers actions. So if, if, if I know that growth and inflation are slowing at the same time at the end of February, at the end of January, uh, you know, obviously in March everybody started to figure out. Eventually, the Fed figures it out, and then the Fed, the P part of the GIP model, the policy response is to devalue the dollars, or it's to, you know, again print money. And then we had this, you know, this glorious um, synchrony, I guess, in their own eyes from the establishment to effectively not only print money but give away money, you know, from from the Treasury's perspective. So now you've got. The rates of change, in, in addition to the economy slowing, both growth and inflation slowing at the same time, you had the rates of change, the deficit rising, U.S. debt rising as a percentage of GDP. So it just became very obvious that there, there was a developing risk. Again, just like any sandpile theory, you're dropping grains of sand on top of a, a pile that's already destabilized. And once it was done, it was done. I mean, obviously, the Fed's panic and the Treasury's too, reflects – Uh, the economic reality or economic depression that we had uh, throughout March, April and parts of May.
2: So uh, basically, we have this sort of uh, late cycle part. We're at quad four. There's a huge exogenous event that happens, and so the next thing is the money printer revs up, right? I think that when we look back at early 2020, at least uh, the meme of the year will be the money printer go burn meme, like right, like like it or not, and uh, and so the the outcome of this or, or part of the expected outcome, and I think what we're trying to piece through now is inflation accelerating, right? And this is how we get into quad three. But I guess one of the questions, and I see you debate this constantly on Twitter, is where are we expecting inflation to show up? It feels like this is maybe the most gotcha uh, Twitter fight, FinTwit fight, you know, since 2008 almost about inflation or not, and where it where it's going to appear.
1: Yeah, I think that's because you have a lot of academic wonks or people that have their PhDs and are part of the establishment. They think on a linear basis. I affectionately call a lot of them linear econs. Uh, or people that know nothing at all about economics that are just they just have an opinion on deflation versus inflation because they're long treasuries and 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 a lot of different things that got them paid on the deflation side we were there i i obviously understand it Uh, but you can have a cyclical inflation within a longer term secular deflation inflation is pretty simple it's in your account i mean it's in anything that you buy in dollars if it goes up in price that's inflation i mean if it's if anything you buy in dollars goes down in price you know, that in your account is going to look like loss of money or loss of capital and deflation. So, again, you know, deflation is a much bigger risk. That's the big bang theory that a lot of people have, the end of the world thing. Uh, but the Fed is fighting against that. And, and their number one way to weaponize uh, inflation without ever mentioning it. And the irony, obviously, Nathaniel, is that most government linear econs cons will say, well, there's no inflation not until we get to, to our target. Um, you know, by then, you, you know, who knows what what amount of money we would have made buying commodities and bitcoins, anything that's got a intense inverse correlation to the dollar. In other words, as the dollar goes down at a faster rate, these assets inflate at a faster rate. I don't think it's a debate. I think it's actually probably the easiest debate that I've ever. I get in plenty on Twitter, as you know, but I mean, <laughs> the uh, this one's this is an easy one. This you can knock somebody out in the first round with this one.
2: Well, I think this is what's so interesting, and I do think that the kind of focus on on wonky traditional measures, particularly the CPI, it's maybe also the area where I think regular people feel most disconnected from what policymakers are telling them, or at least one of the areas, right? And you've pointed this out in terms of things like coffee prices. People have seen groceries go up, and these are measures that are excluded from CPI because of uh, you know they have a, a demand that's basically not uh, going to change or fluctuate too much. But people, when they experience inflation, it's in those areas, and this is a—it's it, almost distracting to have such a focus from a kind of traditional academic economic perspective on this one measure of inflation.
1: Yeah, that, that, that is right on the screws, correct. And again, um, just think—think think back when when the Fed or the establishment econs when they're telling you that the risk to inflation. When, when's the last time they actually acknowledge it? Well, they said that at precisely the time that. That my model said we were about to have deflation, which was in Q4 of 2018. The Fed raised interest rates because they were concerned about inflationary pressures at precisely the peak of the sine curve on inflation. That's when headline or CPI inflation, the one that you called out, just it was right around 2.8 percent. Some of the monthlies got to 3 percent. So well above their quote unquote target. Oh, so therefore now we're worried about it right when you should be worried about a reversal. The thing about inflation is that it's mean reverting. It goes up, then it goes down. It goes up, then it goes down. It's actually one of the easiest things. Again, I built predictive tracking algorithms to front run it. So I use a commodity to your point with like a lot of these different call outs. And human beings really do see like if you're a carpenter, uh, like my dad was, you're going to you're going to have seen the cost of lumber has risen dramatically in the last month and a half or you know to your point, if you if you drink coffee, you're going to realize that. And that's the thing about the people. The people figure out systematically that things are inflating because they're paying the price of those things. Whereas investors um, or people like me are have already front run them, you know that's the whole point. You got to get long inflation before the people at large realize it. And that by the time some government guy, central planning gal, by the time they tell us that inflation's here, you know the investment opportunity to have been long commodities or Bitcoin for that matter is way in the rearview mirror.
0: Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io.
2: Another part of this story that I think is really interesting is the, the dollar story. And I think we've seen uh, kind of this narrative, two two major narratives since the the peak of the crisis let's call it in March around the dollar the first was holy crap why is this thing staying so strong there's all this money printing we would expect it to get weaker and then that weakening actually showing up although there's kind of a, a debate a little bit it feels like around what the DXY story is actually telling us right is this uh is this a dollar weakening is this just really a euro story the dollar still seems strong against emerging market currencies what do you make of the of the dollar narrative right now and maybe more than the narrative the actual kind of story of the dollar in a a real way?
1: Well, I think generally, like a lot of narratives are bullshit. I mean, there's a lot of people that have a a narrative that fits their permanent position, if you will. And and whether that permanent position be a political position on one side or the other of the aisle or a a marketing position of an asset class, you know, people are just constantly spewing a narrative. Now, the thing with Wall Street is that their narrative is always moving. So what we call is that, you know, there's narrative drift. The reality is that the dollar moves with deflation, like moves within the quads. The only time the dollar goes up is in quad four. So again, that perpetuates deflationary pressures. That's why something like Bitcoin got smoked when you had quad four, deep quad four deflation uh, into the thralls of March, and that surprised some people. It didn't surprise me. I mean, we weren't long Bitcoin at that point. Uh, we went bullish on it in April when it became very obvious that the Fed was willing to devalue the dollar and and do it in a way. That nobody, even beyond the wildest, I think the bulls, the people that love the Fed, Fed lovers, they call it, you know, creative and innovative <laughs> in ways. So at that point it started to become clear that the dollar was was done going up because the Fed was and, and the fiscal side was committed to devaluing it. So by May, you know, our our, our signal and our model said that the dollar um, was done going up, starts starts to break down, and you finally get that dollar based inflation. If you pull back a, a long term time series of the dollar, we're just getting started. I mean i think that that's why you see such a parabolic move in the the like i'm not just you know bullish on bitcoin i'm bullish on a lot of things And, and if it offends people that i call bitcoin a commodity that's fine i mean um but i i don't think of it as a currency i think of it as a commodity that trades in dollars so again i think of silver the same way um people that think of silver as a currency they might get offended i'm not trying to offend people it's just what that my model calls these out as and I call it a commodity because it has the volatility characteristics of commodities. So if you want to go through that, we can too. But what happens when the dollar starts to develop this intense inverse correlation to commodity prices currently, Nathaniel, it's 98% on a 30 day duration. Like the machine, you know, the modern day machine in asset management, that's uh, purely algorithmic, doesn't care about narratives. Absolutely chomps on that all day long. So it just sells dollars and buys things inversely correlated to dollars. That 98% level on gold and on the CRB commodities index broadly that you have now, is just unbelievably strong, um, almost unprecedented. Those are the things that I really care about. It's like, what is the math doing? Not what is somebody telling me a story about? Uh, I can tell you a story about, you know, Pump coming out and saying, look, I'm going to print another whatever and do this for whoever ahead of the election. I mean, I get the story. But the reality is, if the dollar's is not doing what it's doing, then I won't be As grossed up, if you will, on the invested side of long commodities and Bitcoin.
2: It's really interesting. I mean, I think one of the things, uh, you know, I talk a lot about narratives here in this exploration, but it's always in the context of narratives being a battle of self fulfilling prophecy, right? And the reason to understand narratives isn't to accept them, it's to understand what people are trying to tell you. And it's a weird combination of a, of a lagging indicator or a sort of a lagging explanation as well as a leading indicator of people trying to push things and make them so. I think actually that's part of what makes Robin Hood and the Davy Day Trader phenomenon so uh, interesting this year is that unlike a lot of folks who kind of have their perpetual narrative, these guys are willing to absolutely engage in total narrative warfare and use any means at their disposal to try to drive prices in a way that make their narratives crude and uh, memified as they are make sense.
1: Yeah, that, that is such a good point. I mean, for me, you may or may not, um, people may or may not believe this, but I can't even under, begin to comprehend somebody's narrative unless it's it's written in numbers. I just can't. I, there's no code for it. There's no back for it. There's nothing. So when I read things like at night, I read things in the morning. I'm literally reading rate of change numbers. It's it's not somebody's interpretation of the numbers. It's the rate of change, which is, again, you know, some people kind of think that's this is funny. But when I say that or not, I mean, the secret to the universe is calculus. I mean, it's not it's not that complicated. So if the rate of change of the numbers are moving, then I'm listening. Um, I think narratives, you know, human beings by nature, I think to your point, just need to tell themselves a story that they can believe in. But I don't, I I go both ways all the time. I mean, I've been bearish on Bitcoin plenty of times and bullish on on it now. I mean, it's, I will go the direction of these, of of the numbers. The rates of change change, I'll change.
2: So uh, I want to just add a little bit more to the, the U.S. dollar conversation, because I think you had another tweet that that summed this up nicely. You said, being, quote, bearish on the U.S. dollar since May of 2020 means being bullish on commodities, China, and emerging market equities. We talked a bunch about commodities, but I'd love those those other pieces as well, if we could bring them into the story.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, again, a lot of people, their narrative is, is um, you know, we as human beings have confirmation biases, you know, recency biases. There's so many different heuristics that we have. Uh, in our thick cross that, that people anchor on. Um, but imagine for a second that you live in Mongolia or you live somewhere that's not, you know, in the state of Connecticut, uh, where I'm sitting today, which is a, a tough day for the state with the, the storm. But, um, you know, people around the world for a long time have looked for an opportunity to, to see American weakness and, and to see American weakness through the lens of its currency. Um, that's what all those other things are priced at. You know, China's debt, for example, the largest. the the largest swath of U S dollar denominated debt in the world is held by the Chinese. If you take down, if you take the dollar up, well, that's going to hurt them. If you take the dollar down, then that's going to be better for the Chinese. If you you look at all of emerging market currencies, like you mentioned, and some people will say, Oh, it's just against like, like, like you mentioned, Oh, it's just against the Euro. I mean, that's complete bullshit. The the dollar last week alone was up against the Chilean peso, like two and a half percent. It's been up against that 8% in the last month, the Chilean peso, for God's sakes, the, the Hungarian forint is up almost 10% in the last month against the, US, the The bloodying of the U.S. dollar. So so that's the thing is that they – and think of it maybe like this. If you're – again, if you're a non-recency bias, non-confirmation bias, non-local human being, and, and you're sitting there and you say, okay, what currency do I want – if I work all day, do I want to be paid in a currency that's going to be worth more tomorrow or less? And how about like for seven or now it's seven straight weeks, the dollar is down against their currencies. So you're damn right the Hungarian guy or the Chilean gal is happy because the, the currency that they're working their ass off for is going up in value. <laughs> and so are their equity markets. Now, um, that's that's obviously there's a high correlation, um, inverse correlation between the dollar and emerging markets. So, again, I often say this. If you want to get commodities, emerging markets in China, right, you got to get the dollar right. If you want to get the dollar right, you got to get the quads right. And, and that's why we start with the quads, get that right first.
2: So there's another another piece of this. And, and I think one of the things that, again, people appreciate about this type of analysis is that it connects the dots between otherwise disconnected data points or things that can feel disconnected. You had another tweet that said the bond market gets the quad three stagflation joke. What do you think that that means?
1: So when, when somebody says, uh, and this really is why you see, uh, and I think it's a really good point to make about you know the, the the Twitter battle today, it, just think of like how intense the battles can be. But this one about inflation versus deflation, as soon as one traditional, a traditionalist or an establishment person hears the word inflation, they think, okay, well, that means bond yields must go up. So you can't be long bonds. Again, that's bullshit, right? It, 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 that is true when you're in quad two, when you have the two factors in the model, real growth and inflation rising at the same time. So nominal bond yields a rising gold hates that gold collapses when you have rising real yields and it you know loves it when you see real yields collapsing so again stagflation is when you take a falling growth rate real growth rate in this case the u.s growth rate's negative so that's easy to understand and then you you subtract a positive and accelerating inflation rate so all of a sudden you're, you're the negative real rate gets more and more negative and that's what stagflation is this is why actually if you go back to the 1970s even um, this even confounded Warren Buffett for a period of time in the 1970s because he's like, holy shit, every time I buy one of these stocks, it goes, because cause he's a value guy, right? So he bought it at, like, let's say he bought it at 10 times earnings, and then it went to nine times earnings, and then it went to, the S&P 500 went to seven times earnings in the 1970s because stagflation is so damning for P&Ls for a lot of different things. Just think of it. Your revenues are slowing, your costs are rising. That's it. So your margins are getting squeezed. Margin compression equals multiple compression. And that's why that happened. I think we're on the front end of that, and I think that's quite literally why um, now stock market updates are being led by commodity sectors of the market, not by you know all the things that you know, kind of that people would would have traditionally expected, like banks or financials. Financials hate stagflation, so it's not just the bond market gets quad three stagflation today. Uh, short sellers of financials get it. Um, financials are down 22% this year. The Nasdaq's up. That same percentage, uh, or, or thereabouts. So, I think I think the market actually, if you break it down into its parts, which I think a lot of people of the modern macro era would that aren't really I call it macro tourism or narrative based, uh, you can see it. All the different parts of the market understand this.
2: So the macro tourism thing is really interesting. And you know one of the things that's interesting is that you've spent a lot of your career doing the actual number side of this, right? Making money by applying this analysis, by applying this process. But you've also made a major, major investment in media, right? In offering an alternative approach, an alternative take. How much is what you've called the old wall, uh, the traditional financial media at fault in kind of people's misunderstanding of? Of what the markets are telling them well it's
1: it's a blessing that they're they're, they're still gainfully employed and, and running the place so <laughs> just start with that i mean um you know it's, it's, it's there, there's so many components to this we could have a whole discussion for 30 plus minutes on this topic but i mean you know there's a generational problem you know all the the establishment politically and from a wall street or the old walls perspective is run by a bunch of baby boomers and so again um, it's not like my dog's name's Boomer. I'm fine with the name. I'm not trying to do, use it as a pejorative. I'm, the reality is that I'm Gen X, and you know, most people I talk to are Boomers, Gen X, Gen, Gen Y, Millennials. It doesn't matter what generation the people I'm talking to about this are. It's the people are unanimously of one generation, of one establishment, of one view, the old wall view that are basically running the place. You know, So the most recent example of that was that when it came time to choose your liberty or safety, you know, what did Wall Street and the old wall choose? They chose to devalue the dollar, uh, strap millennials with the largest deficit in the history of humanity, and 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 debt, too. You know, that, that's what they chose. Some short-term safety at the expense of, of long-term liberty. And these are super long cycles. George Friedman just wrote a wonderful book about this called The Storm Before the Con. And um, Friedman's uh, got to be north of 70 years old, but, you know, he's a great geopolitical strategist, and we have one, too, uh, and Neil Howe, who I, I think you might know, um, who's, who's, who he actually coined the term millennials, and um, he calls it the fourth turning. So these generational turnings, whether they be an institutional one that's like 80-year institutional turning, um, these are long, long, long cycles, or a 50-year one, Friedman, I think he calls that a socioeconomic one. You know, There's a tremendous amount of angst and disbelief that starts to get built up into the end of the regime or a generation's reign. And that's what I think about that. I mean, Old Wall and CNBC has never been as conflicted and compromised as they've always been, whether it be banking fees, whether it be trading commissions, advertising dollars. And that's saying a lot, Nathaniel. Like, I mean, I, th- I, I think people know <laughs> that there's conflict of interest, but for it to be the worst it's ever been now, I mean, that's embarrassing.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, my first entrepreneurial project ever was actually a magazine about this generation, the millennials called the journal of a generation that doesn't know whether it's a generation at all. And it was, uh, it was largely uh, predicated on or influenced by a lot of Neil Howe's work, which is an interesting little twist. Um, so uh, this actually gets me though, to uh, maybe a, a kind of a, a wrap up question that that is something that I think is, is really fascinating. I'm interested in your take on your method, obviously your process, you've built a process that helps you, uh, Take advantage of to make sense of and then make money from the, the reality or the, the circumstance we find ourselves in. But you also get enormously frustrated by the decisions that are feeding into that system. Right. And so I, I'd love your take lastly on kind of building out a little bit more on this, this question of in, in, income inequality, the fed's role in it and just the, the policymaker in generals, uh, what, what they're doing to kind of straddle the next generation with just a, an untenable situation.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the great, like, moral divide in my fixed goal. You know, on, on the one hand, my number one goal is to preserve the capital that, that I've had the blessing to make over the course of the last 20-plus years working and, and you know, to preserve that capital for my family and compound that, the returns on that capital. So that's, on the one hand, that's my, that's my number one goal. And, and then on the other side, there's the moral decay associated with making money on something that is going to absolutely pulverize the people not only I am still to this day, I mean, my father was a firefighter for 38 years. And my mom uh, didn't work. And, and, and you know, I get it. I, I get uh, that I'm making money on the back of a broken establishment's policy. And that's, I just kind of like, I get frustrated with that I'm sure you can see that because it's frustrating to see that as in particular, a great country like this, and I came here in the 1990s, I'm a Canadian, my family, my kids, my four kids are Americans. Um, I came to this country. It wasn't like that. I mean, it was, you know, free market capitalism was at a, at a, a far more pure definition. And I get frustrated with that, too, because I, I, I worry for my kids. I worry for what happens after all this or what's about to happen now because of all this. It a good start to happen tomorrow. It's already happening. Um, I don't think that the, the gold price and the Bitcoin price in particular are, are, are validations that, that great central market plannings are, are, are working. Uh I think that they're telling you it's the beginning of the end of an establishment in a regime like the Federal Reserve.
2: What are signs that you take optimism from? Are there are there countervailing forces that you hang your hat on as you try to kind of wrestle with this uh, this challenge of, of where we're headed?
1: Yeah, conversations like this. I mean, it's it's um, it's kind of like therapy, <laughs> a little. Bit, you, know? Um, you know,
2: it's it's not about how
1: many times I screw up. I make plenty of mistakes. Everybody can see those. Um, I think it's about the opportunity and, and really this is what I think generationally is the opportunity it always has been in this country in particular generationally people just throw up their hands and say that's bullshit and other conversations like this are happening and it's okay for I think I've said bullshit enough times that you could have called me out on it if you didn't think it wasn't and <laughs> and evidently you haven't so I mean uh, and I, I have so many of these conversations these, these conversations are real these are the ones that uh, I think the next generation should look forward to. Uh, unfortunately, uh, these have a central tendency to end in a mess uh, before you can actually have new leadership you know, take control. But the establishment is locked and loaded. They're going to they're gonna play this out in full, and, that, and that's going to be uh, one hell of a ride.
2: Well, uh, along that ride, for people who want to uh, strap on and, and uh, keep track of what you are, are saying as opposed to what uh, what others are saying and, and what Hedgeye is looking at, where can they find you?
1: Uh, hedgeye.com, that's, our, that's where most of the, the sound bites of what I'm, I'm trying to, to communicate, uh, or my, my Twitter handle, at Keith McCullough. I'm, I'm there every morning and then grinding away.
2: Awesome. All right, Keith. Well, thanks so much for hanging out today, and uh, we'll see you on Twitter. One of the things that I really appreciate about Hedgeye and Keith is that their process is so rooted in a numerical analytical framework. We have such a strong competition for narrative in the social media sphere, in the mainstream media sphere, that to have a basis, a starting point that is so driven by just what the data is saying is really refreshing. I think, in fact, that in some ways, it gives Keith and Hedgeye an upper hand even when they're participating in a narrative conversation because their whole point is that they're not wedded to one or another. One of the things that gets me the most excited about the future is that more than ever, a different demographic, a different set of people, a different generation is asking questions about the economy. And rather than just being accepting of the standard narratives that they're being told, They're wanting something different. They're wanting a deeper understanding, and they're wanting to go figure out what answers make sense to them. I think that's one of the major things driving interest in assets like Bitcoin. But it's not just Bitcoin. It's an entire new world of financial exploration that's opening up for a whole different group. And it's not just one age group. It's a lot of different people who have been excluded by traditional financial media. That's a powerful thing, because when more people and more different types of people have a chance to have their voice heard in the context of the economy, it breaks the power of those narrative gateholders that have shaped things for so long. Anyways, guys, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We will be back tomorrow with another great interview. Until then, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.